Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations with thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If you want a piece of that, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your chosen social media platform, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about the servitization of product management and reflect on whether that's even a real word. We talk about the types of product management tasks you might be comfortable outsourcing, the stuff you should really keep in-house, and the importance of making sure that even when you do outsource it, you use it as a learning experience for your team. We also reflect on when product management gigs go wrong, what you might do to try to make them go right, and when it's time to just cut your losses and move on. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Jazz Shah. Jazz is a product manager and product consultant who used to work in a fish and chip shop before using that experience to help put the fin into fintech. I'll just give you a moment to digest that one. Jazz loves building and helping to build products and has worked for over a decade doing just that for financial institutions, challenger banks and more. He's here tonight to talk about all that, but also wants to clear up a few misconceptions about product people, which he's doing at least in part with his product consultancy Bitzel, as well as a little bit here in this interview tonight. Hi Jazz, how are you? Hey, Jason. Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? Absolutely fantastic. Top of the world. Thank you very much. What an intro as well. Always give it some oomph up front, <laughs> and then everything else is gravy. Love it. So first things first, you're the founder of Bitsel. So that's a consultancy. So for the record, what problems do you solve for your clients? So the problems that I solve are mainly around product management and product strategy. Often in the early stages of organizations, the product management structure is missing or there needs to be a bit more weight in certain phases of that product life cycle. So early stage companies might need a bit more help on the discovery side or working through those product life cycle stages during maybe design or build or launch or scale. So various companies maybe need that extra bit of assistance and some later stage companies just need a bit of structure around their product function Sometimes they want help with hiring, or sometimes they've just got big new idea. They kind of want to test out. They don't want to disrupt the current flow of work. So bring me in, do a bit of work, do a bit of discovery, strategy, work with the client to understand what their goals are, and basically help them with, with general product management and strategy. So would you say you're very much then approaching this from a generalist point of view, like you say, because obviously there's a lot there. You've just talked about lots of different elements and you could be an expert in any one of those or be a consultant in any one of those. So is your value proposition really that you could go in and help them pretty much with any part of their product management process? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a lot of the, the structure and the process around it, but I do largely focus on the fintech side. So I think it helps to to have all of that knowledge kind of not in the bank, but I mean, you, hey, can, use, there you, go. you, can, you, can, you can use that pun. But it, it helps that the industry-specific experience is there. But it's for me, it's, it's largely the product process and ideation stuff and some of the, the more general strategy work. And you say you work with a bunch of different types of clients as well. I mean, you've touched on really early stage companies, for example, that maybe don't really have any idea how to set themselves up at all, but also then the later stage companies. But is it still primarily sort of startups and scale-ups or do you 
kind of find yourself going into the the big banks and the big financial institutions and trying to help them with some of their unique challenges as well? At the moment, it is mainly the startups and scale ups, mainly because that's where I enjoy working the most. With some of the large organizations, the the work is is very different. It is a lot more about structure and process, and there's you know output takes a lot longer to see. So I I do a lot of talking and meetings and workshops probably for about two three months before I see any output. Whereas with the startups I work with, you know I could I could work with startup for a week, um, turn a bit of work around, introduce you know maybe revamp a roadmap to make it more strategic or clear and you see that output within a week so yeah so that fast feedback yeah proper lean way to do things right yeah exactly it's just it's not impossible to do with the big banks it's just very difficult to go in like the function in the bank has to be very small if i'm working with them so it's a lot harder because usually they want product management expertise across a big function it just it's just not not practical for me to be honest but the traditional view of fintech is some of the banks and insurance companies and payment companies and all of these big old legacy businesses that have been around for hundreds of years are all just that. They're legacy, they're outdated, they're slow. And obviously, fintech is there to basically offer a new way, using new technology to go out and solve some of these problems in different and exciting ways. Is it fair to say then that a lot of the work that you're doing is working in very disruptive spaces? Or do you think there's also good work to be done building products that just marginally improve some of the things that people are doing day to day at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that totally. There's there's loads of value to be had going in and, and doing those, you know, 1% improvements on existing products in the fintech space. I look at personal finance management as probably one of the biggest areas that could do with a bit of improvement. Even from the fintech side, you know, there's probably not enough personalization and guiding presence managing finances on both sides, fintech and incumbent. Probably due to, I mean, it's mainly due to regulation, but mainly our fintechs are just getting up to that level, using open banking, pulling that data in, giving people a different view, you know, a different entry point to see that aggregated view of their finances. And you have to take customers on that journey slowly so you can't do everything in one go. Yeah. So I think personal finance management apps within fintech are at a really good place. And I think the next step is to really look at someone's finances and go, well, you know, that HSBC or Barclays account that you've got probably isn't doing you the world of good based on your spending habits, based on your savings process, based on your mortgage and your car payments and your income level. You should probably switch to a different account, which will get you more interest. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because there's this whole idea, of course, of all this disruptive technology that can come in and change the world and all these great things. And obviously, you can do pretty much anything with technology if it comes to it. But there's also this idea, perhaps, that some of the people that would need to be using this technology or subscribing to this technology maybe aren't there yet. And that there's a journey of like where you want to be and then maybe making some of those incremental improvements to kind of get them along the way so that when they are ready to go there, they've already made most of that journey themselves. So it's like an, it's a really interesting space, but I do wonder sometimes if people get a little bit too excited about how far people are actually willing to go, because ultimately fintech and banking in general lives or dies by number of users, right? And that the amount of people and the amount of money that they're putting into it, and if they don't feel confident doing that, then it feels like a really tricky proposition to get that into the market. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you take open banking as, as an example, some people might know what open banking is, some won't. Yeah. But the the initiative it's, itself was designed to kind of give that banking data that, that is essentially the customer's own banking data, transactions, payments, direct debits, beneficiaries, all that kind of stuff back into the hands of the customers. So this regulation was put in place, you know, loads of fintechs and apps are using it to aggregate all of your different accounts. So adding your Monzo and your Barclays and your HSBC account and your mortgage in one place. But most people probably don't actually know what open banking is. They know the use of it. They've got this app with all these connected accounts, but they don't know what open banking is. So, you know, that's an example of the fintech bit not really being understood, the output being there, but it's not really understood. Yeah, absolutely. But as we mentioned, you've got a long career in fintech. Ever since finishing university, I think you've been working in and around banking and financial services, spanning startups, also big banks like City as well. So what was it that got you into fintech or financial services in the first place? Was it something that's always been a passion for you or is it more like right job, right time, something that came up and that kind of got you in that way and you develop your passion from within? Kind of strangely, it was it was the the banking crisis. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> it was unfolding early 2008 and then it kind of all came to a head in, was it September time? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, so it was actually that. A few of my friends worked in, in financial services. One of my good friends worked at Morgan Stanley for his placement year. So just before we graduated, I was just kind of asking him loads of questions about, oh, what, is, you know, what does this thing mean? You know, you're wearing a suit while you're on placement and spending a lot of dosh. Like, what is it? He's like, oh, you know, I work in investment banking. Asked him loads more questions and kind of got interested in it from there, really. And then when I graduated, I was looking for a, looking for a graduate role and I was like, did a computer science degree. So looked for a graduate role and it was on desk development at an asset management company. So sitting there doing VBA with spreadsheets and access, exactly what you would think about (laughs) when you're talking about like a rapid application development team, which was me and one other person sitting there like writing up applications, group portfolio analytics. So yeah, that was my first job and kind of been in it ever since. But then you started working in product management. I think you started out as more of a BA, if I'm yeah. if I'm remembering rightly, and then moved into more product management across your career. Yeah. So what was it that got you into product management and made you so passionate about it? Because obviously, you are very passionate about it. You're running a consultancy to bring that out to other people. So what got you on that journey? It was actually that first job in, you know, that on-desk development job where I was doing the development and I realized that the development bit was the least interesting part of my day job. The <laughs> <laughs> least interesting part of my day job was the thing that's in my actual title. So I started to kind of like the first three months I was learning and, you know, I found it really interesting. And then the next three months I was kind of like, I don't know if this, the, the, the writing the code bit is that fun, but I do enjoy my job. What do I enjoy about it? And then I, I realized, well, it's, you know, asking the fund managers and the traders questions about what they do why they do it, what they need. It was all that really. And then I, a lot of them were really surprised that I was intrigued about what they do. They were like, oh, <laughs> you're just a tech dude. Just listen to what we say. We'll tell you what we want. You just, you know, smash that keyboard and write it for us. 
So like, I started asking them questions. They were like, oh, what's, why, why are you asking? I'm just like, I'm just really interested in what you do. And maybe I can figure out a way of, you know, helping you out in a way that's you've never thought of. Built them a couple of bits. And then I was, they were just like, oh, this is great. We, we'd never thought that you could even do this using VBA. <laughs> so it was, it was the solving the customer problem bit that I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is really interesting. The analysis, the process of figuring out what problem is, what are the different ways of solving the problem, giving it back to someone, seeing their face at the end of it. <laughs> but you went then through a variety of different companies in product management roles, I think, as you say, mostly in, in fintech or in and around fintech. Yeah. But there was a point then three years ago where you sat down, or three and a half years ago, and were like, yeah, I'm going to start a consultancy now. What was it that gave you that push and moved you away from the relative safety of a nine to five job? I've been working at, you know, I worked at Schroeder's and I worked at Fidelity. And the the actual projects, like the applications that I was building up there were really interesting. I just wanted more of them. I just I didn't want to work on one application for three years and then hope that there was another one that I'd get the opportunity to, to help build. You work on this application for three years, you may or may not get that project switch. You may or may not get the opportunity to do it on a different product. And I thought, I don't know if I can keep moving companies every two years. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought, what's the best way of still doing that product build stuff, helping someone achieve an output, build a cool product, and earn money <laughs> and work on loads of cool projects. And I was like, well, I think a practical consultancy kind of makes sense. Yeah, and that was, that was it. But when you speak to some of your clients or potential clients, you're going to be in a situation where not all of them are necessarily cool products or things that you think are cool. And there's going to be some kind of filtration process that you're presumably going to want to go through to make sure that you are working with the types of people that represent your interests or the types of things that you want to be working on. Is it like that? Or are you in a situation where you have had to work with some real shockers in your time? I think, honestly, I think I've been pretty lucky like the past couple of years. I've been super lucky. I've worked on, yeah, it's all been cool stuff so far. I'm going to add so far. Because you, <laughs> you never know what's around the corner, right? Yeah, because you never know. But yeah, I've had, I've had loads of opportunities to work on cool stuff. And there is an element of filtration, but it's not. Like there's, there's always something cool to do, even if it's, you know, within an environment that's doing maybe not so cool a product. <laughs> there's always something cool to do. Like, you know, you might be working for a product that's not interesting, but the problem within that organization is intriguing. Yeah. So maybe they... They've got too many product people or the development team to product team to design team ratio is off and they're still churning out features and getting stuff delivered, but there's a bit of a blow or, you know, there's no roadmap and they're somehow delivering a great product and they have been for four years, but there's no real roadmap. So there's, there's always an interesting problem yeah. to solve, even if the product isn't necessarily that interesting in itself. But again, I've been, I think I've been quite fortunate. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers crossed, yeah. But one of the things we mentioned before this call was how you've worked with a bunch of clients from all over the world in your time. I think you've worked with, you know, just to call out a few countries, Hong Kong, Taiwan, India, USA, Middle East. So quite a, a range of 
working cultures and kind of business norms in in and across some of those markets. And one theme that I've explored with guests on this podcast before is it's not always the same as in the books when you start working in places that aren't in places where those books were written. So for example, very different to Silicon Valley norms when you start working in places that are quite far from Silicon Valley. Have you personally found any major differences either regionally or specific to particular countries that have either been a real eye-opener, like a surprise because they made your product job easier or just things that made your product job a whole lot harder? I think probably the biggest one is it's, for me, surprising how if you don't have those clear lines of communication set from the outset that, you know, there's there's so much of what – it's the game of telephone, right? You say one thing and you say it again. Or, or you have people lined up and you're drawing something on each of their backs. And by the time you get to the front, you're drawing a circle at the back of the caterpillar. <laughs> the person at the front is drawing, you know, big square with a triangle at the end of it. And then you compare the two things and it's shocking how it, if the lines of communication are not clear, so many things can like escalate and fall off track. So for me, it's even overnight things like not having those. If you don't have stand-ups, for example, when you're doing a cross-border dev product design team, that for me is a, a bit of a red flag. If you don't have those clear, like that open maybe Slack or team channel where you can just do it, maybe do a handover from one team to the other. Because even big banks, I think they have their flaws, but they usually get this right because the offshoring process or the offshoring theme has been quite hot yeah. for big banks over the past probably 10 years. They've managed to get it right. What they do is they have big process docs to say, there's a handover doc, you fill it in, there's no ambiguity, there's no, you know, oh, I thought they were going to do this or we're supposed to do that. It's so clear. And I think I've seen that in, in different organizations when they don't have those lines of comps that things usually go wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think is really common when you are talking about offshore teams, either offshore or just distributed. Definitely communication can be a problem. I also think communication styles can be a problem between cultures, for example. Yeah. Like different people with different working norms may be, for example, like they may say that they understand something, but they really don't because they don't want to look stupid or yeah. there might be communication barriers between different people. So I think it's alongside the communication lines. I think it's just really important to establish those conversational norms as well that just so everyone knows what everyone's talking about and develop that shared language. Yeah, exactly. I mean, something that you know, I've found helps with that is, you know, creating your own working persona doc before. Mm -hmm. So, okay ways you can ask me questions or comms methods that I prefer. Yep. So drop me a Slack message and I'll 100% get back to you within two hours. Or I prefer not to be called during the hours of 12 and 2 because I'm usually doing some admin. Or, you know, if I'm being direct, it's because I, I want to get to the source of a problem. Yeah. And if you've been annoyed or frustrated by it, you can send me a message and I'll chat and I'll apologize if I've probably <laughs> said something a bit too bluntly or, you know, talk it out. So yeah. those really help. Oh, absolutely. But you said before this call that you once quit a full-time job because you weren't getting enough support to progress the product you were managing and not enough support on other stuff you were working on. Now, 
I'm not going to ask you to shame anyone and you can feel free to change names to protect the innocent. But what's the story there? Uh, this was a role where, yeah, I was, I, was, I was working on an application, had a few good ideas, got loads of buy-in and just kind of wasn't really getting the support to, to implement the thing. It was essentially integrating a load of apps so that it would just streamline the order management process for the whole fund management desk. And I was kind of shocked that, oh, why why is this thing not getting support? It doesn't make any sense. The whole the people who are funding the business want to do it. And it was a bit of bureaucracy. It was a bit of, you know, oh, we have to wait till the next budget gets set and you know, the projects for the year have all been allocated. And I was kinda of like, uh that was the point where I was like, well, okay, this is frustrating because it's been going on for six months do you expect me to just sit here and just do BAU because there's no real value to you me sitting here just taking in support requests and making tiny tiny changes so uh, I got I was just kind of introspecting at that point and just thought well maybe this isn't for me and I can see this kind of continuing for for the foreseeable that's when I decided okay it was that as well as the not seeing the other projects that I was going to be working on. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's almost like one of the cliches of product managers being treated like project managers, right? Yeah. You're being given a list of tasks that have been decided by someone else. Sounds like it was probably a bigger company, like you say, with a bit of bureaucracy and a bit of (laughs) overhead in it. And, and that you know, there's obviously reasons why big companies are like they are doesn't mean we should accept them but there are reasons why they're like that yeah i guess the question then is like how long did you stick that out before you decided this is time to to get out and find something better i mean it was a it was about seven months yeah to be honest um just because i don't know is it is it one of those things where if you're in a relationship and you you know you're <laughs> you're like oh i can you know Maybe she'll try. I can change her. Right? You know, you know, she's not into she's not into Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> but maybe if I just casually watch some, you know, Infinity Saga while she's there, maybe she'll change her mind. Oh well, you know, she she showed some interest. Maybe you know, maybe, maybe if I give it a few more months, I think it got it got to like four months, five months, and I realized no, I don't, I don't think this, I don't think this is going to change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the typical advice is like, yeah, just go to them with evidence, make sure that you're documenting stuff and that you can go to them and prove the value of things and that you've done your homework and that you've got all of the supporting yeah. stuff that you need. I guess what you're saying is that it kind of just bounced off them anyway. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, the thing is, it might, it could have been, maybe it was the way I presented it. Maybe it just wasn't, Yeah. maybe it wasn't financially viable. And those are all, you know, those are all fair points of feedback. But I was getting none of that feedback. So right. it was just, well, we're not doing it yet. Yeah, We don't know when we're going to do it. And it was like, well, that's not really great feedback for me because I just worked on this for three or four weeks. And I think this is a great idea. So tell me it's a rubbish idea or tell me it's too expensive, but don't kind of like bat it away with no feedback. Yeah. Well, hopefully other people will take inspiration from that and jump sooner if they feel that they're bashing their head up against a brick wall yeah seven months is is you know that was pushing it i'm i may i'm an optimist yeah i think you generally know within a certain period of time let's say six months 
just to give a, a month's worth of change. Yeah. <laughs> Within six months, you probably have a fairly good idea of the pulse of an organization and how decisions are made, how information flows and, and all that stuff. So I guess after that, if you're still sitting there saying that whatever I do, it's just not moving anywhere, just have a decision to make, right? Yeah. And like you say, if you're getting enough green shoots or enough feedback that says, yeah, maybe one day and you're in it for the long haul, brilliant. If not, as one person that I spoke to once said, life's too short to work for companies that don't get products, right? So <laughs> just go and work for one that does. Yeah, exactly. But now you're out of that and consulting again. And one of the things you also mentioned in the prep for this call is your belief that certain aspects of product management could be servitized. This is a word I've never actually seen before. <laughs> but the way I understand it is more along the lines of offloading some of your product management responsibilities to other people. I guess if I was a consultant, I would probably advocate offloading parts of product management to, well, consultants, right? So what do you think the concrete benefits are of servitizing aspects of product management? And what are the key aspects that you're most keen on doing this to? In terms of the benefit, I think it's 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 more around what your existing product function has and maybe identifying what it doesn't have and then using that servitizable <laughs> two new words servitizable element to kind of do bits of work that maybe you'd have to hire someone and that lead time would take three or four months to bring that person in to help do the thing that you want to do so for example if you're coming up with a brand new idea for an extension of your existing product but it's in a space that your existing product team don't really have experience of, or your existing product team are used to running mode and they're not used to doing full-blown end-to-end discovery on a completely new product add-on. Those kind of elements, I would say that there's pros to maybe outsourcing segments of work. I wouldn't say, you know, I, don't, I would never advocate to outsource the whole segment of it. Like, for example, outsourcing customer feedback loops to product management consultancy. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's more like those ad hoc things or some high-level strategy stuff that you want like an external force to help with. It gives new perspective, kind of lets you have like that external accountability. Because what I found is when you work, you know, when you're working in a startup trying to build something is that you're so focused on your day-to-day -day stuff that Sometimes the strategic stuff can be a bit of a pain. <laughs> it eats into your day. You somehow have to get rid of all your day-to-day -day stuff. You can't stop going to stand-ups. You can't stop doing refinement. You can't stop doing the retros. You can't stop you know, having those discussions with customers. You can't stop doing roadmap reviews and refinements and all that kind of stuff. So you, you know, hours in the week, if you're trying to come up with a completely brand new innovative idea, sometimes there's just no time. It's outsourcing some of those elements uh, and across the product lifecycle, but definitely not like a custodian outsourcing a whole support team kind of model. Yeah, I guess the flip side to that would be that if teams don't get a chance to do this stuff, then they're never going to be able to get any good at it themselves, right? So do you advocate that being more of a partnership or do you think that's something that gets handed over as a package and then just sort of handed back at the end? 100%. Yeah, partnership. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's kind of the only way I operate. So I won't go into an organization 
if I'm not able to work with the existing people or if they're too busy for me to work with them, I kind of speak to the sponsor or speak to the CEO and just say, look, before I come in, they need to free up their calendar because they're going to be spending two hours a week doing discovery, doing research. Like I'm going to be speaking to them. We're going to be doing ideation stuff together. So I won't usually do stuff alone. Sometimes I'll create templates or process diagrams or pitch decks or product walkthroughs or brand new roadmap. But before I present it to the actual stakeholder, I'll make sure that the existing product team understand what is being done, why it's being done, how it was done, so that it's maintained by them on an ongoing basis. Because essentially, I don't want to be there for three months, six months, and then leave and kind of leave it in the same place that I came into it as. There's no, there's no point to that for me. I want to see progress and, and tangible outputs. So that sounds cheesy and BS, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the clients I'm working with right now is that's, that's exactly how I'm working. I have a catch up with their product lead, head of product every day. I'll do stuff during the day. So I'll do like some roadmap creation stuff some strategic analysis and discovery on specific initiatives they want to drive forwards. But I'll, I'll run it past the existing product person first and explain how I got there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I think that the question would be where the actual consulting finishes and the coaching begins, right? And whether there's any appetite from your side to maybe step away from the actual consulting side and become like a, a trainer or a coach of product managers instead. Has that ever felt appealing to you or do you feel that's just part of what you're currently doing as a side benefit? I think it's the latter. It's kind of, yeah, it's a little happy side effect of what I'm doing right now. I've not thought about it, but I've, I think after this, I pro- <laughs> I'll give it a think. Uh, you know, because then you don't have to worry about the products, just the people, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, but the products though, yeah. they're so good. <laughs> That's the whole point of this product management <laughs> stuff, right? So maybe it's not time to yeah. jump ship quite yet. No. But we also talked about misconceptions of product managers and how they bother you. What's one misconception about product managers that really bothers you? And you can't say the project management thing because we already covered that one. So something that's not project management. Uh, I think a lot of the teams that I've worked in and with and for they expect every single product manager to know the tech inside out. Yeah. You know, I'm, I come from a tech background. So that's, for me, that's kind of, that's in my toolkit. Yeah. But it's not in everyone's. And it, the expectation can't be there that every single person knows, you know, what lines of JavaScript control buttons in the app. It's not realistic and it doesn't really make that much sense. I think it makes sense to know how loosely the app fits together, what the different sections of the product are, how it t- how the tech ties it together or how the, the tech drives it. And knowing the tech acronyms is obviously helpful, the same way the business acronyms are helpful. But it's that expectation that I think product people should know the tech. And if they don't, they're not really product people. It's just not right in my book. Yeah, there's this whole debate going on around whether product managers should be able to code and again i come from a technical background too so i can code that's brilliant i try not to because there are better people than me to do it and also i don't really think it's my job i do think one misconception of product managers which is very linked to that that bothers me is that product management is effectively just a part of engineering but it's the part that can talk to people 
<laughs> versus the the over the part that sit there programming. Yeah, I don't think that's a very healthy cliche for anyone to perpetuate. To be honest, yeah, definitely not. I mean, they, you know, product the product people have to be. They kind of they have to be very objective, and you can't be objective as a product person if you're sitting in the engineering team. Yeah, exactly. So because everyone has their different priorities, and product people shouldn't sit in ops. Yeah, under under an operations team, they should should be their own function. And if there's product ops people that need to be there, they should sit in the product function. Yeah. and be tightly coupled with the operations team. And if there's product owners, they should sit in the product team. But be tightly coupled and tightly, you know, tightly linked with the engineering team. Same with product marketing and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Let's not get into the product owner versus yeah. product manager <laughs> debate today, though. That's, yeah, a, that's a whole different episode. Yeah, exactly. And what piece of advice would you have for a young, ambitious wannabe product manager to get into product management, take that first step? I mean, re- uh, reach out to me if you are. There you uh, go. <laughs> dr- dr- drop me an email. You know, I, I genuinely, I like, I, I will. If someone DMs me on LinkedIn, I'll respond. I'll set up a thirty-minute call, and then just say, "Do you really want to be in product? Like, what's, the, <laughs> what's the driver?" And not like often, I'll get asked, "Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about doing this course on product management," and oh, well, I don't. Oh, you know, I'm I'm from a tech background, so I don't. I'm not sure if you know I'm really right for it. Or oh, I've come from the business, so I'm not sure I'm really right for it. It's more. I'd say have a chat with someone. Have a chat with someone who's an existing product manager, maybe, if you know them. But if not, DM someone who you would like to have a chat with, and you'd be surprised how many people just go, "Oh, that's bold." Yeah, I'll have a chat with you. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I do day to day, and you know, if you find it interesting, great. And if you want some advice, I can give you some advice. Or if you want to know how to get formally into it, then there's here are a few books. Go try and figure out if you've got an idea for a product, try and flesh it out. What's the process you would go through? And then like maybe get someone to, to help you out with it. It's kind of the best way of learning, doing it, doing it on the job. So you've mentioned people can get in touch with you. So aside from emailing you, which they obviously can do, where else can people find you on the internet if they do want to talk to you about any of this stuff? Yeah, they can yeah, you can check out my LinkedIn, Jazz Shaw, or jazz at bitsor.co.uk, or just go on the website, bitsor.co.uk, drop a message. Yeah, that's that's it really. I'll put that in the show notes and hopefully you'll get a sustainable yet constant flow of visitors to <laughs> come and get some of your excellent knowledge for them. Ask me what the difference between a product manager and a product owner there is. There you yeah. go, that's that's a good first start. <laughs> Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time and taking me through some of your experience and thoughts and opinions. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>